KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. That tragic school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, was made even more enraging as more and more information came out about how many law enforcement agencies and officers were actually on site and yet no one acted. How can this happen? I mean, police have a responsibility to act in a situation like that, right? Well, let's look into that by talking about the Supreme Court decision in the case of Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. Our guest will be Terry Ravenel. She is an associate dean for faculty research and development, also a professor of law at Villanova University's Charles Widger School of Law. So the first thing I would like to do is kind of have you lay out what this case was all about. Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. And uh, I believe this stems out of Colorado. It does. Uh, The facts of the case are absolutely horrific. This involved a family dispute that had been ongoing for some time. And a mother had taken a restraining order against her estranged husband. The two shared three daughters and had made a custody arrangement. One evening, the mother had let her three girls go play in the front yard, as we so often do, and they disappeared. It's like every parent's worst nightmare. Um, Her husband called shortly thereafter and said that he had the girls. And what's interesting about this case, and it's really the heart of the case itself, is that they had had a number of disputes already. And Ms. Gonzalez had a restraining order against her husband. And the restraining order required that he, you know, keep a distance from her, from her children. And when they did have to exchange custody, when he did take the children, um, it was under very specific circumstances. And so him just removing the children out of the yard was paramount to kidnapping at this point. So not surprisingly, Ms. Gonzalez did what most of us would do in this situation. And she called the police. And this made a lot more sense for her because specifically she had a restraining order that she is supposed to be able to have the police enforce. So she calls the police, as any of us would do in this situation, and said, essentially, my husband just took my three girls. You need to go get my three girls. And not only that, I have a restraining order against him. And so he has violated the restraining order. He has come onto my property. He should be arrested. What I should take a moment to point out is that Colorado had a very specific, very powerful restraining order for situations like this. Um, They had dealt with domestic violence in the past. And unfortunately, when it comes to domestic violence, it's not always that it's enforced in the sense of the police don't always arrest the aggressor in in domestic situations. They often treat them differently than we would treat a situation as if a stranger came up and hit you on the street or if there was some sort of physical altercation on the street. And so Colorado being very aware of this sort of history of under enforcement of domestic violence had actually come up with what they dubbed a mandatory um, sort of arrest statute. And when it came to domestic violence, uh, domestic violence and restraining orders, 
there's a restraining order and on the back of it, it said specifically in big, bold letters, notice to law enforcement officials, you shall use every means to enforce this restraining order. You shall arrest or if an arrest would be impractical under the circumstances, seek a warrant for the arrest of the restrained person when you have information amounting to probable cause that they've restrained, that they've that the restrained person has violated the order. So basically, it's like you must arrest them. That's what the restraining order said. So, of course, she thinks like this is this should be simple. So. Maybe it wouldn't be so simple if the police don't know where her husband is. But then her husband actually calls and tells her where he is. It's like, I have the girls at the carnival. So she calls the police back and says, this is where they are. Go get my children and arrest this man who has violated the restraining order. The police do nothing. They basically say, call us back later. And they just keep blowing her off. She calls repeatedly throughout the evening. The police keep blowing her off. So finally, her husband actually shows up at the police station. He basically commits suicide by police officer. He antagonizes the police. They ended up shooting and killing him. And when they look in the bed of the truck, they find the bodies of his three girls that he had previous that he had killed earlier that evening. And so, you know, this is one of those situations where you think to yourself, well, my word, if the police had just done something, these three girls would be alive today. There was absolutely no reason for this to have occurred. Their mother called repeatedly. There was a restraining order in this case. Why didn't the police do something? And because the police didn't do something, you'd think, well, they should be liable because they literally did not do their jobs this day. They were given very specific instructions under the law that because of this restraining order, and they, they, you know, they did not perform. Was there a reason given why? Was there ever, before we even get into litigation, was there ever anything conveyed to her of to the why? The officials who are answering the phone never provided her with a reason. And I think, unfortunately, that this is what happens too often in contact in the context of domestic, quote unquote, disputes, that they're often undervalued and downplayed. And the idea is sort of like, oh, it's just a father who picked up his kids. Like, granted, he shouldn't have done it. But like he has the girls at a carnival. He's having fun with them. And it's not taking seriously the law that police have been asked to enforce. And I think on a broader perspective, it's this really interesting question about the relationship between police and courts and who actually has the discretion to make the decision. And police have an enormous amount of discretion. And I think that they're used to exercising that discretion. And it probably comes as a bit of an anomaly to have a situation where they're essentially told this is mandatory. This is something that you have to do in this situation. You don't get to exercise discretion. Um, and so I think that in that way, it's, it's, a, it's a bit out of the ordinary for them. 
Uh, but I think it's it's unfortunately too ordinary in the context of these sorts of domestic disputes. So she does sue the police department and the town? Uh, she does. She sues the police department and the town. And so one of the things that's really important and interesting is that oftentimes when a person sues the police um, or, or a municipality, many times they're going to do it under federal civil rights law and specifically under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. And what this statute does is, is it allows you to bring a lawsuit, a civil remedy for deprivation of your constitutional rights. And this is the, the core of the case in town of Castle Rock v. Gonzalez, is whether or not there is actually a constitutional deprivation in this case. And so what Ms. Gonzalez alleged was that she had been deprived of her 14th Amendment right to due process. And what the 14th Amendment due process clause says is that no state shall deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process. Previously, plaintiffs had tried to pursue these types of cases, what we can refer to as police inaction cases, under the substantive due process clause. And many years earlier, there had been a case called DeShaney that had been brought in Wisconsin. And the case that the the facts of this case are like equally tragic and sad. Um, it's another case involving family disputes. In this case, there was a young boy, I believe he was four years old. He may have been five, but I'm pretty sure he was four. And he was living with his father at the time. And his father was severely abusive. And, you know, it was well documented that Joshua was the little boy's name was being like, you know, neglected, beaten, just severely uh, mistreated in the home of his father. But rather than removing him, social services continued to sort of make notes when they would visit. Sometimes they'd notice that things were awry. They'd notice bruises. He was in the emergency room a number of times. He was missing school, like just sort of all of the red flags. Well, one day, Joshua's dad um, beat him so severely that he wound up in a coma and suffering from severe cognitive difficulties for the rest of his life. He would need, you know, care. And so Joshua's mom, who was estranged from his father, ended up suing the social services for their failure to sort of look after her child as they had been tasked to do. And the big question was, and this comes directly from the language of the 14th Amendment, was whether the social services had deprived Joshua of his life, liberty, or property. And that same question, in some respects, could be you know, seen as coming up in Gonzalez, whether the police officials deprived the you know, Mrs. Gonzalez and her girls of life, liberty, or property. And the problem with these cases is that they're in action cases. And so in many ways, the most direct actor is the private person who is directly inflicting these harms. So Joshua's father or Mrs. Gonzalez's ex-husband. And the question becomes, can we say that the police or social services nevertheless caused it? 
And I think many of us would say, well, yeah, there's still the but for cause. Had they done something, this harm would have been prevented. And so we can say that they deprived the person of life, liberty, or property. But what the court said in DeShaney is that is not the case, that typically police do not have an affirmative duty to prevent or to intervene to prevent harms caused by third parties. There's a few very narrow exceptions where the where the government does have an affirmative duty to sort of to protect people. But for the most part, what the court said in DeShaney is there's no affirmative duty to protect. We aren't going to hold police responsible for you know, preventing every injury that happens to that a third party inflicts on another. One of the court's rationales in this in DeShaney was that we actually don't have a constitutional right to police protection, that this is a service that states provide us, that municipalities provide us. And so it would be wrong to hold them liable for basically doing a negligent, you know, performing the job that they don't have to perform negligently. Now, again, these are the types of things that don't really make sense to many of us because our thought is like, no, if you're doing a job, you have to do the job. Like you can't sort of sleep on the job. All of us would be fired under those circumstances if on most days we're just like, you know, I just, I don't really feel like doing it today. Um, But what the court says is because they don't, they aren't obligated to do it in the first place. We're not essentially going to judge them for doing it really poorly. So they don't have this affirmative obligation. We need to take a break. We will have more with Terry Ravenel right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Terry Ravenel. So the Castle Rock case. And this is something else. This is kind of like the big reveal of this because so many people with the Supreme Court these days are kind of jarred by kind of how extreme to the right it's gone and how it's upending precedent and not paying attention to precedent, stuff like that. And to the big point in this conversation, you kind of think that this is something new. This is back. Castle Rock is 2005 and it was a 7-2 decision against the woman to what you were just pointing out. like. What are we doing here? Like, I, I give me, I give me something to to kind of cling on to here because it doesn't well, really seem to make any sense to me. And it actually is worse in some ways because in Castle Rock, it wasn't what what the issue wasn't the same as in DeShaney. So in DeShaney, it was viewed as a substantive due process case, and they said there's no substantive due process right to have police protection. So Ms. Gonzalez's attorneys really thought very carefully about how they could reframe this case so that there would be a constitutional violation. And they didn't frame it as a substantive due process case. Instead, they they framed it as a procedural due process case. And what they said was that although there may not be a general sort of affirmative duty, essentially by writing the restraining order in the way that they did, that Colorado gave her a a property right in that restraining order. 
And so when the police refused to enforce her restraining order, they deprived of her of her property interest. And so it was this new novel argument that was very different from DeShaney in this way. And what her real argument was is I'm I'm away from DeShaney. I'm arguing something completely and entirely new that's very much based around the, the law in Colorado that was available to me at the time. And what was really problematic is the court also rejected her argument. And even though Colorado had taken all of these affirmative steps to sort of create a right where and create a scenario where police, in fact, did have to arrest, um, they the Supreme Court denied it. One of the things that the Tenth Circuit did when they actually the Tenth Circuit was the Court of Appeals that heard the case before it went to the Supreme Court. They actually found that she had a procedural due process right to have her restraining order enforced. And one of the things they they noted when they made that decision was what lawmakers had said when they were enacting this bill that would require police to arrest in these situations, that would require police to do something. They said that police must make probable, and I'm quoting from the lawmaker here, what they said is that the police must make probable cause arrest. The prosecutors must prosecute. Judges must apply appropriate sentences. The entire system should send the same message that violence is criminal. Um, And what their point was is that it all starts with police officials in many ways. Like they have to act, they have to arrest, they have to sort of take these affirmative steps. And despite all of this, what the Supreme Court said, and Justice Scalia authored the opinion was, we do not believe these provisions of Colorado law, these provisions where they say in the restraining order, you shall arrest. They said, we don't believe that these provisions truly made enforcement of the restraining orders mandatory. So what they basically said was, you know, deep rooted in law enforcement is discretion. Even when it seems to be mandatory, it's not. So police officers always have discretion to decide whether or not they're actually going to act. Even when we have laws that tell them they must act, they still have discretion. And one of the questions that I've posed in the past in this situation is, well, if we want to mandate police to act, then how do we do it? Because it seems like Colorado took every step possible to mandate action. And the Supreme Court said that they had done that it was insufficient, that they had not clearly created a mandatory statute, even though it says that shall and must. It's not mandatory. So boil this down for me. What is the responsibility of a police force then? What what are we doing? I keep coming back to this question, kind of like, what are we doing here? We're, we're spending millions, billions of dollars on police force. A lot of places, they are getting extra military. I mean, they're, what is their role when you come down to it based on everything we've talked about here? What is the responsibility of police? I think that 
what we see in both DeShaney and Castle Rock, and even more broadly in cases like Dobbs, is this idea that when it comes to things like policing and more and more areas of our daily lives, that the Supreme Court is really taking a step back and saying, you're not going to find your rights in the Constitution anymore. If you're going to find them, you're going to have to go to your state to find them. And that's exactly what the court actually said in Castle Rock when they ended it. And it's it just, I think it's so enlightening because it's really very much a foreshadowing of what was going to come, you know, 17 years later, because as you mentioned, Castle Rock was decided in 2005. And now here we are in 2022. And what they said um, in that case, when it comes down to it, if Colorado wants to create a system by which department police departments are generally held financially accountable, let them craft such a system under state law. Their point essentially was, look, don't come to us. Don't come to the Supreme Court. Don't look to the Constitution for a solution when it comes to these sort of what they view, I think, as more local disputes or local issues. Instead, it's up to the quote unquote people of Colorado, but the people of the state to craft a system under state law. And I think that that's that's where we are in a lot of places is that it's not so much that nothing can be done. It's that we're not going to find our solution in the Constitution, unfortunately. This is a case that the reason I wanted to talk to you about this is it kind of bubbles up. And I saw a lot of people talking about it on social media after the tragedy in Uvalde, which has been well documented, where hundreds of police officers ended up standing around as these kids were were slaughtered. And people pointing to this case and saying, well, actually, people keep asking the question, how could the cops not do anything? They should be held accountable. And people pointed to this and saying, well, actually, no, they don't they, they, they don't have to be held accountable. And that it's just it's incredibly depressing to me. Like, I just keep coming back to this question. What are we doing? <laughs> I agree. And I think that it's incredibly depressing, particularly when we look at so many other fields, so many other professions where people are continuously called on to act, to put their lives at risk and they continue to do so. Um, you know, we saw it throughout the pandemic with our frontline workers, with people in hospitals who literally, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, being in a hospital was taking your life in your hands. And yet they showed up day after day, 24 hours upon 24 hours. And this isn't to suggest that police officials aren't doing their jobs. In most situations, you know, law enforcement officials are doing a tremendous job under a tremendous amount of stress. And I don't want to belittle or minimize what they do. But I think that a slightly different way to frame it is what does the law actually require of them? 
And when we look at like state tort law, a lot of state tort law would suggest that if there's a lifeguard on duty and there's somebody drowning on the, in the pool and the lifeguard doesn't jump in, like they're liable. They have an affirmative duty to jump in. And there's certain professions that if you have chosen that profession, that calling as your career, then you're taking on certain affirmative obligations. And for the law not to recognize that is, is really disheartening and, and, and in many ways, very backwards. Um, and I think that one of the problems of not recognizing it on a constitutional level is what we end up with is we end up with a very splintered, fractured you know, system where we have very different rules throughout the country. One of the beautiful things about the Constitution is it creates a common denominator. It creates a floor under which we should not fall beneath. And I don't think it's too much to suggest that yes, police officers do have affirmative duties in certain situations. And we mentioned this is 2005. The court's much more conservative now and much more willing to kind of say what it really feels. I guess we shouldn't expect any challenges like the, to this that would make its way through where you would see this court look at this question differently. Oh, no, I would be absolutely shocked. Um, I'm not a I, I don't bet, but I would if I did, I would definitely bet against any affirmative duties coming out of this court. And again, I don't think it's just the question of affirmative duties. It's really a larger question, too, of if there is going to be an affirmative duty, is it going to be recognized under the federal constitution or is it going to have to come from the states? And what we've already seen this court say very clearly is that a lot of issues um, are going to have to go back to the states. And what that means is that those sort of large constitutional frameworks that we've looked to before, that floor, that safety net, um, that the, the Constitution has provided, I think, is is vanishing. And maybe I'll make this unfairly broad, but the thing in Colorado, that was a state law that was written. For all the talk of sending stuff back to the states, we just had the Supreme Court say that New York couldn't enforce you know, a, a gun laws and it's going to ripple effect to others. So it seems to me, as a layman, it seems to me that it... Everything should go to the states, except if it's something we don't like, and then you can't do it. Am I make being too simple, or, or, or I'm not trying to be funny about no, it? No, I I think that what you demonstrate is just the complexity of these issues and this real challenge of when is it within states' rights, when is it within the federal government's rights? How do all of the state and federal government's rights actually? intermesh and connect with our own individual rights. And raising sort of the Second Amendment is really interesting and important because it also shows how we have individual rights, the right to bear arms. And it has always been a very complex question of how to balance sort of the rights and duties of states, the rights and duties of 
the federal government, and then individual rights and responsibilities. And this has been a sort of triangle that has shifted over time. Um, it shifted, you know, in a big way following the Civil War. And what we really saw at that point was the federal government start to take uh, on a larger role in sort of protecting individual rights and the relationships between states and their individual citizens. We also sort of saw the New Deal taking on a much greater, the federal government taking on a much greater role. You know, I think that in a lot of ways now, what we're seeing again is a reconfiguration between these three different points of, you know, state government, individuals, and federal governments. And it's never been an easy dance between the three ever. So it's interesting. I feel like the average person is living their life, believing they're operating in one system. When when you really get down to the nitty gritty, that system's not really in place. Like we think that, you know, you you just kind of reflexively something happens. You call the cops, cops respond, address the situation appropriately. But if there's not that affirmative need or affirmative responsibility on the police, it kind of changes the way you look at everything. And we should probably have that kind of more on the table that this is what's actually required of police. Am I making sense there? Yeah, no, I think it's a really legitimate question. Um, If what the Supreme Court has told us, at least implicitly, is that we should not rely on the police. And that's one way to view this. And I, again, I don't want to hyperbolize it, but when you think about the idea that there is no affirmative duty, what that means is that the police don't actually have to show up, or at least they're not going to be liable um, from a federal civil rights level if they don't show up. And so what that suggests is that if they don't have this affirmative obligation, Um, that we, in many ways, our reliance arguably is misplaced. And this raises this question of, if we are relying on the police to perform these duties, and our constitutional law says, well, they don't actually have this duty, is our reliance misplaced? And if it is misplaced, how should we reconfigure our lives around this new recognition that the police are not required to protect us. And for many of us, that would suggest, well, gosh, if I'm not going to be able to count on the police to show up at my home when an intruder is breaking in or when something's happening, I need to figure out ways to protect myself. Maybe that means I decide to move to a gated community. Maybe it means I think about living in the condo building with the security guard. Maybe it means I, you know, do purchase a firearm. Um, But you start to recalculate how perhaps you want to live your own life if this resource that you have been relying on and probably felt like was guaranteed to you as a citizen or as a person, as a resident of a particular city or state is no longer guaranteed. And I think that that's a really important question um, to consider. And, you know, the other, the other sort of piece of this too is, 
you know, what's interesting and what happened in Texas in that horrific case is that so many parents did want to go in and they were prevented. And that was one of the interesting arguments that the court raised back or that the um, the plaintiff raised back in Deshaney in the early 80s when that case came up was that part of the problem was, was that everybody was relying on social services in the same way that everybody was relying on police. And when everybody's relying on a system that is that they didn't expect to fail, then they're not taking actions themselves. And so instead of a neighbor perhaps intervening and actually, you know, being more aggressive about taking Joshua away from his father or contacting the mother or doing all of those things that you might do if you don't think that the state is intervening, nobody did anything. Um, And I think that, you know, you see similar things happening in the sense of people don't act to sort of protect themselves or protect their families because they're relying on the state to be present. And I think we all really hope that that reliance isn't misplaced. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.